In the novel Weather by Jenny Ophel, protagonist Lizzie Benson does worry about the weather, as in climate change, but also the political and social climates of today. She's also worried about many more issues that are closer to home and that feel as irresolvable. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Set against the backdrop of the 2016 elections and the looming anxiety-causing evidence of climate change with which the protagonist obsesses, Weather by Jenny Ophel is a novel for our times. This is a very slim novel, but it carries the depth and breadth of a much longer tome made intricate by its many hefty subjects and themes. Lizzie is a librarian, but lacks the traditional degree for that role. She's taken care of her mother and a brother who is a recovering addict for years. She's always been the stabilizing force at home for her husband and son. She's worked part-time, too, as an assistant to Sylvia, who hosts a podcast called Hell and High Water. In this role, Lizzie becomes more acquainted with how polarized our country is. Staying on means diving more deeply into the divide and not tending her own garden, one that's been neglected for too long. We spoke to author Jenny Ophel about her novel, Weather. So as I've been carrying this book around, of course, people ask me, what are you reading? What is that? I'll say weather, and they want to know, what's it about? (laughs) And then, you know, I start my long answer. So (laughs) I rarely give a short answer. Um, But there kind of is a short answer. What do you say to people when they ask you what the novel's about? Well, I should have gotten really good at this, shouldn't I, at this point? Um, But I tend to also kind of give a long answer. If I was going to give a short answer, I would say that... um, it's about a librarian and a mother who um, becomes obsessed with climate change after she starts answering questions um, for someone who does a podcast about it. And then it kind of goes from there. So, yeah, the podcast is called Hell and High Water. And she is this so-called, you know, feral librarian who doesn't have a degree in library science. And she's working in this um, university library. There are other so-called climate change novels, and I, I see more and more nonfiction on the subject, too. Do you think this novel can move the needle? I mean, the needle in terms of Americans and others figuring out, you know what, the die is cast. We're hurtling towards something fairly cataclysmic all the time already. It's like that one red-faced man in that audience, uh, Sylvia's audience, at one event refers to how we keep hearing about the glaciers, these melting glaciers that are supposed to be like universally representative of this problem. But he's just like, but what about American weather, <laughs> right? <laughs> so what about that? This, do you think a novel like this can really start to move the needle or be part of this, this body of work out there that can move the needle? I think it can be part of it. I think that what's happening right now, which I find very heartening, is that a lot of people um, are coming at the question of how to deal with the climate crisis from from whatever their area of expertise is. So we may be hearing um, from people who are lawyers thinking about what they're going to do in terms of environmental law, um, about uh, engineers that are working to, to figure out uh, better ways to have sustainable energy and infrastructure. I think the role for someone, you know, like me is so much of uh, 
climate change literature until recently has been of the apocalyptic sort, post-apocalyptic. Um, and it's sort of a scared straight situation where you hear about how awful it will be in 2040 or 2050. Um, and at least for me, I feel like one of the things about living in this time is that one minute you can be really seriously thinking about what it might mean that a city like Miami is going to be not inhabitable. And the next minute you can be picking up your kid from practice and driving around in your car and not thinking about any of these things at all. And so I wanted to write a novel that was sort of, a, I guess, pre-apocalyptic, that it was about how we're managing um, this sort of twilight knowing, of knowing that something very uh, cataclysmic is happening, but not yet sure what our role is in in fighting it. There's this forecast for natural disasters due to climate change, but then there's also like this tornado of other problems headed our mm -hmm. way, or we're just, it's always raining. And, you know, <laughs> that's sort of symbolically, we're always um, dealing with everything else. I thought about the way that you weave in the presidential election of 2016. It starts mm -hmm. to creep in with Lizzie's neighbor, Mrs. Kavinsky. Mm -hmm. She's not a great neighbor because <laughs> her TV's always <laughs> so loud. And Lizzie, the protagonist, can hear things coming from the TV news network and Mrs. Kavinsky's place, things like, you know, I'm a handsome man, am I right? <laughs> <Or> <laughs> You're one of the few people that caught that as an actual Trump um, uh, Trump thing. I was uh, like, oh, when I heard that, I thought, I've got to put that in the book. <laughs> and all this stuff about beautiful walls. Mm -hmm. You know, for some of us, that amps up almost every other tension in this book. It's sort of like, oh, no, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it terrible, climate mm -hmm. change. And then it's there he, there he is. It's sort of like this idea of who can help us. Well, not a climate change denier or somebody who doesn't believe scientists. Mm -hmm. So I found it so interesting because I think that this imitates life. I mean, every other bad, horrible, no good thing that's happening to us in the day-to-day -day feels worse Mm -hmm. because we feel disconnected from someone in that high position of power who doesn't seem to I think that's very true. I mean, one of the things I sort of you know, noticed after the election was it just felt like the level of ambient dread <laughs> became <laughs> yeah. so much higher because um, obviously there were some people who were kind of in the frontline communities that are being immediately affected, but there were all um, all sorts of other people who were also just I think really, at least I was, really wrestling with questions of of complicity. Like, what does it mean to be living um, under under this kind of umbrella of policies that you, um, you think to be abhorrent? And so there was, um, that became part of the book, because I felt like she also started asking, I mean, one of the questions in the book is, you know, how do I know if those around me will become good Germans? And she's referencing, like, what does what does it mean in the sort of lead-up to um, authoritarianism? And how do you know who to trust? And how do you know how to um, you yourself not fall into line? Um, because we all kind of have a normalcy bias, and we all keep thinking, well, not all of us, but many of us keep thinking, uh, well, it can't, it's not going to get worse. I mean, this is, this is probably, I, I think I'm just overreacting. It's probably not happening at this level. And then when you find out it is, your brain just kind of adjusts again and 
and normalizes it. Um, so this book was, was, a lot of it was about writing about a narrator who was um, going from a place of uh, maybe all of her caretaking energies, which are quite considerable, were going to her, um, her family and the people who come into the library. Um, but at a certain point, she realizes that she needs to ex- extend that to neighbors, to strangers, even to non- non-human creatures. And it's sort of an overwhelming feeling. You know, that's so interesting because, um, I mean, it's a, it's a slim novel, it's, but it's so, um, it's so dense and complicated in the way that really, 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 really good poetry is. Um, Thank you. So you might read it in a couple of hours, a few hours, but you find yourself still haunted by Sylvia, Mr. Henry, Mrs. Kavinsky, Margot, Catherine, Eli, Ben, Henry, you know, it's like all these people that she, and as you say, all of the patrons that wander into the library or, you know, the, um, uh, uh, these creatures that, that you mentioned, there's so much information, too, about um, when she's talking to Eli, her son, for instance, about animals, or she's just sort of reflecting on something, some research or some odd um, item that she knows about. Um, she is that. She is this very... Um, She's very in her head, but she's always looking outward and beyond. I mean, outward into her, her immediate space and beyond. But one of the things that I was thinking about with her is that she's living in the midst of all this care and concern for everyone and everything else with physical pain. I mm-hmm. thought that's such an important element in, in this work. Um, and I've read a little bit about what this represents or doesn't. I just found it to be also so resonant in a more literal way, we do. I mean, a lot of us live with pain that mm-hmm. occludes, it dampens any effort we might want to make to solve other people's problems because we ourselves are in pain, right? So I, I just find that so interesting, this notion of how she's a woman of a certain age, but... Um, she it seems like she's sort of forecasting into also this generation of people who live with all kinds of uh aff- afflictions uh maybe even growing older or maybe even facing um health issues or uh, uh you know the intimation of a healthcare crisis that doesn't take care of them right or mm-hmm. a health system that doesn't take care of them so that part of it also, I, I think for me, connected back to the whole issue of Trump and, mm-hmm. and our government and the ways in which people have to somehow just try to subsist, you know, in this way. And what, you know, it, what, is, what else does it mean beyond that? I took that notion of her pain in a very literal way. That's a you know, fascinating observation. I, I hadn't um, necessarily tied that all together, but I also felt like um, I, I do know from my own bouts with chronic pain um, of various sorts that there's a way in which it's just obliterating. It, it, you are spending so much energy trying to just get through your day and do what it is you need to do. There's very little energy for anything extra. And I feel like um, there's also, if, you, if you're in that situation, there is the fear of, um, of our health system and, and what it means. I mean, at one point she's talking about her mother, who um, has very little money, that she's driving four hours to this 
you know, dental clinic, and it's a lottery. So many people come, it's a lottery to see who gets in. And, and she says, like, America is this place where you can win big. Um, mm-hmm. And it just feels like some of the some of the things that are taken for granted in other wealthy countries um, are just absent. And so much of our sort of social fabric is, is, is fraying at the moment. And one of the reasons I wanted her to be a librarian is that I feel like librarians are often, um, they've almost become first responders in our, in our society now because they're seeing people who um, maybe in another time would have been helped by social services but instead they're coming to one of the last sort of open and um, kind, caring places they can go to. So that was what I was thinking. Like she, she already feels pretty, um, like her plate is pretty full. Mm-hmm. So when she starts trying to think about the world too, it's a sort of shorthand. At first she just thinks, how can I do this? I, th- there's no room for that. I don't even want to know any more than I know. Her pain is like this. She's not wearing a cast. There's no outward sign of uh, mm-hmm. of evidence of her pain, and it, 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 and so she's she would be treated like most people who live with chronic pain are. Like you know, you sort of have to just walk around and grit your teeth and and just mm-hmm. bear it because people will not look at you in any way that's different, and they still have the same high expectations for you, and they're still expecting you to help them. And mm-hmm. I feel like. Wow, that's just so interesting. It's like this idea of what's what is invisible to people mm-hmm. around her is is her pain, but also um, is climate change. You know, people mm-hmm. are looking for like this hard evidence of pain or infection or you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. Uh, you know, the 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 demise of uh, of our natural world, and um, if they don't see it, they it's out of mind. And, um, and the, you know, it's so easy to, mo- to move on to other things. Well, we're not really, I mean, as humans, we haven't really evolved to um, understand slow-moving threats. I think it was uh, the writer Todd Gitlin once called climate change the first slow-motion apocalypse. And it's very hard for our brains to understand that versus even the fear of something like an atomic bomb, which sort of has a... It has a place in our mythology that's sort of all gone in an instant. But the sort of slow creep, creep, and that kind of not sure what's coming down the pike, but I don't think it's good. I guess one of the things I I was doing there with the aging and with the pain, along with the climate change, is this sense of feeling that something is coming towards you, whether it's getting older or whether it's uh, these bigger things, and, and not yet figuring out if there's anything you can do to sort of manage the, the dread that that is causing in you. Um, as, the, as the novel goes on, you know, there's a little section towards the end where it's like a little riff on, on like, if you call 911. Mm-hmm. Um, she's standing around, and, and this is a part of the novel that's set actually in the future after what will be the November election. She's voted, and there's other people who have voted, and they're all kind of milling around. And um, and she's thinking, what is your emergency? Um, because she starts to realize, like, everybody has a secret emergency that's going on in their head. And she also remembers this bit of lore she learned while she was learning about 
um, search and rescue operations, which is that people often walk past their own search parties. It's oh. such a funny fact, but we're all in a trance, and we just don't notice that we're being looked for. Yeah. Um, and I just thought somehow to me that felt representative of um, of what we all are maybe missing by trying to live in these silos of, of pain and dread on our own um, versus breaking the silence and, and talking more about them and, and working towards collective action. Um, so that's sort of as the book moves on, in a way it becomes, I used to say, oh, this book is about a librarian who becomes a climate change doomer, and that was sort of succinct. But by the end, she's a lot less of a doomer than she is in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so I realized that I um, that there's more of a, to me, a sort of exhilarating uh, little flicker of, of hopefulness at the end. Yeah, I, I do enjoy that idea that she's um, that at the end there is a there's a thread of optimism that's left sort of hanging there for us to uh, hang on to. Yeah, you know. So she's this librarian. I used to work in a university library, and you just oh. you nailed it. <laughs> you oh, did I? Good. <laughs> it's like oh my gosh, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way at all. I mean it was every day was different and mm-hmm. rich, and there was just this cavalcade of people you know, walking in there, in and out, and they wanted answers, and they wanted direction, and they wanted guidance. It's exactly mm-hmm. what you say about her, that she's like this, you know, she she's like this, not Google, that's th- beyond that, you know, she's not yeah. like this, <laughs> this is something else about her that, that um, yeah, let librarians fulfill, and that, I don't think that role has changed that much, in spite of how high-tech I don't either, yeah. and I think that it's sort of it's sort of amazing. I mean, what's changed is maybe that that people who aren't librarians don't understand all of the other things they do. Yeah, um, you know, uh, librarians are constantly being told, "Oh, it must be so great to read all day." And, you know, meanwhile, <laughs> they've just like uh, revived an overdose in the bathroom and like helped someone get a job and <laughs> you know r- fixed the Xerox machine and checked out a million books. And, you know, I think they're sort of like. Right. Yes. It's wonderful to read all day. <laughs> it's so true. So it's interesting because there are all of these librarians that I follow on social media and they're hilarious. They're mm. there. And I won't name specific ones, but it leads me to this one part in the book where it seems like social media misses opportunities all the time uh, in our world, because this is where a lot of people get their news mm-hmm. for for good or ill. Yeah. Um, and then Lizzie surmises that she can't be bothered with social platforms. They make her mm-hmm. feel, quote, unquote, squirrely, mm-hmm. uh, like a rat who can't stop pushing the lever. Pellet mm-hmm. of affection, pellet of rage. This is from the <laughs> So I wondered about your own take on social media and even the idea that writers have to have a social media presence. Here's, here are all these mm-hmm. librarians sort of anonymous, right, anonymously mm-hmm. um, in the Twitter sphere, uh, you know, cracking wise about all kinds of things. But there's there's something about the idea of, of social media that's running through this book that that I found very interesting, that it wasn't necessarily Lizzie's um, sort of platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought maybe in some, in some ways I started to think maybe it really isn't a mm-hmm. sort of um, – a connector in this on this topic. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I myself am not on social media, but um, that doesn't mean I haven't, I mean, I went on Twitter for two months and I thought it was so fun. <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah. like a, it was like a, a drug that you take and you're like, Ooh, I think I like this drug a little too much. I mean, I loved like, I loved connecting with the booksellers and the librarians mm-hmm. and reading all that stuff. It was great to me. I, I, I can absolutely understand why, um, people make it such a big part of their life. Um, for me, I just could tell, I mean, it's sort of written in a, a silly, jokey way in the book, but I immediately felt um, a change in how I was responding to thinking about things, mm. and that instead of them just being thoughts I had or um, things I might put down and, and wonder about working into a book, um, the performative part of it immediately um, just became too ascendant for me, and I thought, I just said to my husband one night, I think I'm going to delete Twitter. I think I've been doing it for two, two months. And he goes, you should. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I went and did it. And it was sort of like, like I was like, oh, I can't go back because I, I told him. Um, and, uh, but in terms of like, I think writers feel, most writers, very much like they have to do it. And, um, and I, you know, I'm not really the one to say for sure whether or not you do or don't. Um, a friend of mine who's my age said once, and I thought this was fantastic advice, he said, we're just old enough that you can pretend you don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I would say is that I did a deep dive, mostly because I was thinking about when to give my daughter a phone. I did a deep dive into kind of the psychology and the engineering of all social media and like the devices we have. And I, I came out kind of alarmed. I mean, there's an actual, it's called captology and that it's, it's at the center for persuasive technology at, at Stanford. They've basically used behavioralism and they figured out that, um, if you give an animal the same thing, every time it pushes a lever, uh, it'll eventually get bored, even if it likes that thing. Um, and if you give it nothing, it will get bored. But if it doesn't know when, what it's going to get, it will push that lever till it falls over from hunger and thirst. <laughs> and that's um, that's kind of where that that um, pellet idea came from. But I do feel like one thing: social media can be fantastic for connecting people. It can be, it can be fantastic for certain kinds of activism. But I think that um, you know we're such social creatures that we do miss anyone who's you know gotten a text message and thought it seemed kind of curt knows that we miss something when we can't read the expressions on someone's face or the tone of their voice mm-hmm. um and i do think that when we're working for uh, about we're working on a problem that is a problem that involves all of us and needs collective solutions i do think there's something to be said for being together in person to work on those problems. And that's why I eventually just like joined, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of Extinction Rebellion now. I, I joined an actual activist group because I thought as much as I like to sit by myself in my room <laughs> and think about how to fight climate change, um, that is not historically how uh, progress has been made. Um, the nonviolent direct action movements are what has moved the needle um, with civil rights, with anti-apartheid, with LGBTQ rights, and um, 
it's really uh, quite a beautiful fact I came across that it's really um, political scientist in, in um, at Harvard, Erica Chenoweth. She studied all the movements um, of of those sort over many years, and and she discovered that it really takes only 3.5 percent of um, a population to join in with a mass social movement for change for it to tip. So that's what happened with civil rights, and um, that's what's happened with. Um, it sometimes it's toppling a dictator. Sometimes it's um, you know um, it's a it's a different kind of um, progress. But I um, I'm not sure that all of that can be done on social media. I guess is what I'll say. <laughs> well, you you seem like you're probably a, just a consummate researcher. Do you, do you do a lot? Did you do a lot of research for this book, or is this just stuff you just have picked up and you just know it? Oh, I love to research. It's very yeah. fun to me. I mean, it's like it's so much more fun than writing because, uh-huh. um, you know, when I'm researching, I'm just I'm just reading. I mean, it's ex- I mean, extremely <laughs> inefficient um, novelist that way though because I'll read like an entire you know book on the history of air conditioning or something to get one one fact that I like out of it, but. Um, I just think it's it, it's sort of a maybe a holdover from uh, my student days. You know, I didn't go to a particularly uh, illustrious uh, public high school, and there, it wasn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to I uh, went to University of North Carolina, and when I got there and saw that course catalog, and there were so many things that I could take classes in, uh, some of that wonder kind of never left me. So that's that's what I feel like when I when I'm researching. Like I can. I can at least dip into all these things that kind of fascinate me. And and if I'm lucky, then later when I'm working on a novel, um, they'll float back in or I'll go desperately looking for them in my files. <laughs> I love that. And also the book, is, the book has very funny moments. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I was reading this book um, at, a, at a coffee shop and I was laughing out loud. My husband's <laughs> sitting across from me. And he, he, you know, I read a lot of books, and he was like, wow, I don't hear you laughing very often when you're reading a book. And I said, well, this one, it was just like every few few minutes I was laughing and, you know, marking the, the space with my pencil. Um, are you, 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 I was going to say, are you that funny in real life? But obviously <laughs> you must be. Are you just the funny person among your friends with um, these wry observations and these... Well, I mean, I think it, it's definitely sort of part of the way I see the world <laughs> to, to kind of uh, make little jokes about it as it's in the book. But I also, it was a strategy in this novel because I felt like um, I wanted the main character to sort of um, almost reflexively joke in dark moments. Um, and the the difficulty was that I also didn't want her to be glib. I mean, I didn't want there's a lot of serious stuff in this book and I didn't want it to seem like it was undercutting that. So I tried to find the moments where she's just kind of recognizing the absurdity of something. Often the humor is sort of self-deprecating at her own expense. I mean, at one point after she's, um, you know, been researching prepper tips for, uh, you know, a year (laughs) and imagining all these different ways she'll survive uh, the doomstead, you know, she's trying to catch a bus. And she's like out of breath, and she just immediately is like, "Oh, I'll I'll die early and ignobly," um, and and so I think that for me, it's another way to kind of add a layer to the book, and maybe um, so much of my past experience with trying to figure out if I could 
I don't know, find a space where I could be an activist or whatever, I often felt quite intimidated by by what felt like a self-righteous kind of tone, and I always felt like, um, oh, I'm, my own house is in such disarray. How can I imagine to help, you know, in these other areas? <laughs> so I felt like some something about her being a, a flawed sort of funny character was, you know, maybe maybe a helpful way in to some of these, in some ways, sort of overwhelming ideas. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that about this character very much. This is a silly question with no answer. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. Can history really be used to understand the future? I know know what you're going to say, but I I feel like just in the context of this conversation, I'd love an answer to that. Um, I don't know what you think I'm going to say, but (laughs) I'm going to say yes, I think it can. I think that the, there's there's whole disciplines built on that. I don't think it can know the particulars of the future, but I think, I don't know if you had a chance to look at, there's sort of a jumping off point at the end of the novel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in, in this website I wrote that is meant to sort of be auxiliary, um, there's these tips for trying times, and they're all historical um, quotes and things like that from people who lived um, during very dark mm-hmm. times and sort of it's a little bit about like, what did they do to keep their spirits up through the siege of Sarajevo? What did they do during mm-hmm. these things? And um, when it comes also to uh, political movements, you can either quite easily trace some of the things that are uh, red flags about uh, encroaching authoritarianism or fascism. Um, I think Tim, Timothy Snyder, the Yale historian's book on tyranny, is a fantastic uh, very slim look at this. In fact, I quote some of it in my own novel. But I don't think, where maybe fiction writers and other artists and just other creative folks can can contribute to the conversation is that I do think that we need to have, we can see the trends of where things are going. I think, though, trying to imagine a way to live less precariously and less fearfully, I think that that is, that is, not anything we can predict from history. That's new. And that's one of the things where it's really useful, useful to look at the youth movements that are working on anything because they're bringing in their own ideas of what a future could look like. And, and to me, it's, it's, you know, I'm 51, and I'm not going to be the one that figures out you know, how to do things. I, I'm, not, I'm not in that category of people that can see those things. But I do think that it's, it's our job maybe to to imagine what we can and then notice who else is doing it and, and learn from them. Oh, Jenny, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Jenny Ophel is the author of Weather. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 